So uh, we are in the last week of our study of the prophecies in the Old Testament of Jesus. This week we're going to be primarily in Isaiah and in Daniel, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about Daniel when we get to that point. But I wanted to start out again in Luke chapter 24. For those of us, who, for those of you who are visitors, or this is your first time, the reason we're doing this study is that at the very end of Jesus's life on Earth, in fact, after the resurrection in the Gospel of Luke, three times—I'm only going to read two of those three times—he uh, tells the disciples that he must teach them because all that has happened to him was prophesied in the law, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms. So that Jesus felt like the disciples needed to know uh, what the right interpretation was of the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. Uh, and so that's what we've been doing for the last six weeks, is going through the law and the prophets and the writings, uh, taking from them uh, those things that we interpret as Christians as being prophetic of the Christ. So here's what is said twice in Luke. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then at the end of, Luke, of the same chapter, he says, Then he said to them, These are the words I have spoken to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds so that they might understand the Scriptures. He opened their minds so that they might understand the Scriptures. Well, I'm going to stop right there for just a minute. You see, the phrase, he opened their minds, would imply that their minds were naturally closed, Right? So we might read this as if, well, that doesn't apply to us anymore because we have opened minds. We know the Christ. Well, that much is true. But the fact is, in our day-to-day -day lives, we might still be slow to understand and need our minds to be opened uh, as to what the Christ wants us to truly be like. Because remember, he wants us to be like him. So that knowing what the Messiah was like and supposed to be like is important for us because we're supposed to be like that. By the way, I see Sean back there again, and I wanted to point out, if you haven't read this week's newsletter, I think you get it by email. I believe there's an article about you, uh, and maybe even by you. <laughs> yeah. It's, so it's his relationship with the Bush family and others, so please read it in the church newsletter when you get home if you haven't already. I think you'll, you'll enjoy that. So, this week we're going to be talking about the Messiah. Does anybody know what the word Messiah means? It's translated in the New Testament, the Christ. Christ in Greek means the anointed one. Okay, now why the anointed one? Why the Messiah? Why the anointed one? Well, in Israel, they anointed kings. Kings were anointed. And we see twice, once in David, once with respect to David, well, two, three times I can think of, 
once with respect to Saul, once with respect to David, and once with respect to Solomon, that when they were proclaimed to be king, the Holy Spirit came upon them in a new way. Saul is a prophet for a short period of time after he uh, is anointed to be king. David is the psalmist of Israel after he is anointed to be king. And Solomon, if you remember, uh, becomes king and is given the gift of wisdom because he asks for that above power and glory and money. Uh, so this idea that the anointed one, that God anoints his leaders, is deep, deep in the Jewish mind. Now there's a second thing that is deep, deep, deep in the Jewish mind that we can't really understand the Messiah without. And it's pretty obvious. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. The 12 sons of, of Israel were, were shepherds. Joseph was a shepherd. And above all things, David was a shepherd. So that the metaphor of leadership as shepherding, the metaphor of leadership as shepherding is as deep in the Jewish psychology as it is possible to get. Uh, and that notion that leaders must be shepherds is crucial to the Jewish way of thinking about what is leadership and what should a king be like. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Um, in, in early Jewish history, shepherds were a respected profession. Abraham was a very wealthy man, and he was sort of the chief shepherd of a family that owned lots of sheep, so he was, a, he was more like a rancher for you Texans. He's more like well, a thousand head of longhorn. Uh, and he managed all of that wisely and well. Uh, but by the time Jesus shows up, shepherding has become a second-class profession. And uh, some of you, has any of you ever had sheep? Ever, have you ever, ever had sheep? Well, this is a little story from my background. When I was at Trinity, I dated a girl who was at Austin College, but her parents were in Cisco, Texas. And her dad uh, had, it's a very romantic story. He was in his late 40s, had never married. He went off to World War II. On his way back, he met this young lady. They married. Her father wouldn't let her move to Texas from West Virginia until he was assured there were no more Indian raids. Uh, and over the course of his banking career, he ended up with four or five little farms. And on two of them, he grew sheep. So that I got to be up close and personal with sheep. They smell terrible. They're dirty. They're very dirty because all that beautiful white wool picks up dirt and feces and everything else. So they're, they're horribly dirty unless you wash them. And they're incredibly stupid. There's a reason why you put goats with sheep, and it's not uh, to separate the good from the bad. It's so that the sheep won't just wander off and get lost. Uh, so that shepherding is a very difficult and hard profession. And when Israel looked back on their history, they looked back on the glorified shepherd, not the reality of shepherding. Do you and I ever do that? Do we ever look at certain things, the, the glorified shepherd as opposed to the reality of shepherding. Uh, I'll just give you one example that applies to politics. 
uh, we were talking about just a few minutes ago. Of course, like all young men, I tell people I suffer from John Wayne syndrome. I watched too many John Wayne movies when I was young. Uh, but when you watch a lot of war movies uh, that glorify war, you get a glorification of war. Uh, how many of you ever had a father that refused to talk about the Second World War? Uh, those who went didn't feel quite so kindly about what they experienced. It was horrible. And they didn't really want to talk about it. Uh, so sometimes we, too, can glorify a kind of leadership that actually doesn't work very well. And we can actually be deceived in ourselves, and it leads us into bad ideas. I, I do that because the Jews were led into bad ideas about leadership. So I'd like to read uh, a few passages. If someone can get these for me, someone get Isaiah 56, 11, and 12. Somebody get Jeremiah 23, 1 through 5. And somebody get Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10. Got him? So who's got Isaiah 56, 11, and 12? Somebody got that one for me? Go for it, pal. Dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned it their own way, each to his own game, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Okay, so Israel's shepherds, you see, have become like dogs. They just drink and eat all the time. You all have dogs. You know that's true. Jeremiah 23, 1 through 5. Okay, I'm not going to comment until we get all of them done, but the comments can be pretty obvious. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10. Say, we already got that one? Over all the mountains and on every high hill, they were scattered over the whole earth, and no one 
lacked a shepherd, so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherd and will hold him accountable for my flock. I will remove him from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. So, the reason I had wanted to read this, so univocally, that means all of the prophets, <laughs> without exception, are critical of the shepherds of Israel. They are critical of the political and religious leadership of the country. Uh, and uh, in the second one we read from Jeremiah is maybe the most dramatic, but basically there he says that shepherds, the job of a shepherd is to follow the sheep around, and when they fall, when they get injured, when they get lost, well, when they're broken, the shepherd's supposed to rescue the sheep and take care of the sheep and get it back in the flock. And that the, the shepherds of Israel were not doing that. They were not doing that. They were taking care of themselves. They were taking care of their own pleasures, their own comforts, their own desires, and they were not taking care of the sheep. Now, I don't want to put too much emphasis on this, but because the prophets are also critical of all of Israel, all of Israel, the entire country, leadership and laity alike, have failed and deserve a judgment. But the judgment falls specifically and most directly on the shepherds who haven't done their job protecting the sheep. They allowed this to happen. Now, I, I can tell you, I've been around a long time uh, in law, I've been in business, I've been in the church, and here is a characteristic of bad leadership. A bad leader looks at a problem and doesn't address it. <laughs> if you look at a balance sheet and it doesn't make sense and you don't get it back into making sense, you have been a bad leader. And if you've got a division out there in your company that's not being managed properly and you don't address it, you're a bad leader. And the same thing applies in the church and it applies in small groups, it applies everywhere. The job of a leader is to address problems so that the organization and the people aren't hurt. And the prophets are saying, this is exactly what you haven't done. Now, of course, they're interested in spiritual matters, which is what we're going to concentrate on here today. They're saying that in Israel, the leadership has not addressed the spiritual decline of Israel. In fact, they've promoted it. It's been worse than that. Um, I thought I would, when am I going to do this? Oh, I'm going to do one more before I tell a little story. Um, so somebody get me John 10, 11 through 18. John 10, 11 through 18. We're eventually going to get to your reading for the week, but it's going to be a long journey today. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Uh, 18, so 18, you did it. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then 
The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. I think that's far, that's far enough. So Jesus takes upon himself the mantle of the good shepherd. He says, "This I am what the good shepherd is like. Being like me is being the good shepherd. So I want to go back and say that it does surprise me a little bit. Some prophecies we're going to study, it doesn't surprise me that the Jews kind of missed the point. But it does surprise me that they missed the point of the Jeremiah prophecy that we read just a minute ago. Because God there specifically says, I am getting rid of the shepherds and I'm going to give new shepherds. In fact, I myself am going to be the shepherd. I'm going to take on the role of the shepherd because you guys are doing a bad job, so I'm going to do it. Uh, so God is saying to Israel, when this new shepherd comes, the new shepherd is not going to be like the old shepherds. The, the good shepherd is going to be different than the shepherds that you have experienced in the past, the kind of leadership you have in the past. So I'll tell you, I, I wrote a little piece on this. I want to say that after Jesus... This is an important point, I think. After Jesus, we can never look at leadership the same way. It was under the line of David, you could look at leadership from a political, military, kind of practical, bossing people around way. Okay? That's what shepherds do, actually have to carry sticks and hit sheep periodically and get them to go in the right direction. But after Jesus, there's been a radical reinterpretation of what a good shepherd is. A good shepherd is one who lays his life down for the sheep. And we can never go back to what I would call a simplistic messianic interpretation from the Old Testament of what the Messiah will be. Because Jesus says, all, that idea, all those ideas you had about, I'm going to be a military leader, I'm going to be a political leader, I'm going to throw out the Romans by force, all of that is not what the Messiah is going to do or what good leaders do. What good leaders do is lay down their life for the sheep. That's what good leaders do. So, I was going to tell you a story. Um, I uh, went to seminary, and I had this little tiny church in Brownsville, Tennessee, Kathy sort of struggled through Brownsville, but I thought it was great. I had all these farmers. I could grow things, and it was, it was a wonderful experience. Cotton trailers coming through town during the harvest. That was always a fun time to watch the cotton trailers come through town. And uh, it was a, a great, great time. And, of course, they had animals. Well, in 2000, uh, we moved to um, Memphis, Tennessee, and I went from a church of 180 to a church of 1,500 in sort of an hour and a half. And well, I'd already applied to uh, a, a DMIN program at Asbury Seminary, 
because I really thought I wanted to do my D-men on spiritual formation and spiritual direction. And they had a great program. And P.S. they weren't Presbyterian. I tell people I had run a renewal effort at Union and the faculty always just hated me. And I did not want to go to another Presbyterian seminary because I knew I would get involved in renewal politics. And I just didn't want to have to go through the struggle against the faculty and renewal politics one more time. So I went to Asbury. But before I got there, this gentleman named Beeson gave $20 million to the Beeson School down in Alabama and $20 million to Asbury and said, do whatever you want to do to train leaders. And so I got the opportunity to be a part of the Beeson Leadership School at Asbury for four years. And um, I have to tell you, this was a great program. What we did was, uh, we, we did have to be there twice a year at least, and some people four times a year. Uh, but the rest of the time, we read books online, and then we would go to one megachurch right after the other. Willow Creek, Saddleback, uh, one in Houston, First Methodist Houston, which is a bi-campus plane, one down in Jackson, Mississippi, one down in uh, Alabama. And we would be with that pastor who had built that church for a week, and we would study one thing they were very good at, like one was a great evangelist, and one was great in pastoral care, and one was great in administration, and one was great in uh, 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 small groups, and one was great in team building. So we had a chance to study intensively all these megachurches. And I have to tell you that uh, it was great, and it was a wonderful experience and good for my church. But by the time it was over, I was bored with the whole thing. I was bored with the Tulsa. I had seen enough to know that there was something fundamentally wrong with the megachurch movement, and I'd, I'd seen it firsthand because I'd been to see all of them. And so I wrote my dissertation on the spirituality of leadership. I wrote it kind of going back to where I started at on the spirituality of leadership, and I tried to write it from the perspective of what would work in any church. What would work in Brownsville, Tennessee, 150 people? What would work at Willow Creek, 20,000 or whatever it was? What, what works? What works? What really works? Uh, and so I, I did uh, the, a study, and then I sort of wrote the dissertation. And it turns out that I think without question, what works is serving the congregation. That's what works. Now, it doesn't mean success. Okay, Some guys serve their congregation in 150-member churches, and they never can get over that barrier. Uh, I have a good friend who's been wounded by the fact that he just never could get beyond that level. Um, he's not a very good manager, and so I think he couldn't. But the fact is, um, God honors us whatever we're leading as long as we're serving the people we're supposed to be serving. And the pastor of the smallest church in America is just as successful as the pastor of the largest church in America if uh, they're doing that, if they're doing that if they're serving the needs of the people. Um, but that is not what we might call the corporate American ideal. What is the corporate American ideal? Bigger is better. Bigger is better, right. The corner office that is bigger with more glass and more furniture is better, right? The, the, be the upper you go, the, the more you success you experience, the better it should get. And there's a level of that that is true and necessary when you get to a larger church. But the moment you cut yourself off from servanthood, you've cut yourself off from the, what we might call the source 
of true spiritual success. And it's true in small groups. I don't want to lean too much on what interests me, which is pastors, because I am one. Uh, but it's true in small group leaders in a church. It's true of Sunday school class teachers in a church. It's true of anyone. Uh, it's are we serving the people that are in the group that we've been called to serve? Or are we not? That's the key of leadership. So with that as background, and we, by the way, we're now past the introduction. Um, <laughs> If somebody will read for us Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, and someone else get Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Okay, and somebody read the, the Matthew. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will put my justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear the Thank you. This is an important passage. So what is the first characteristic of the Messiah? He's a servant. He's a servant. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there, this should tell us that there's no true servanthood without the Holy Spirit. We can't do it by ourselves, right? Of myself, I'm just a mean lawyer, okay? So if I'm going to be a kind pastor, I really need the Holy Spirit to help me do that because I... I can do the legal part on my own, but I can't do the Holy Spirit part on my own. The gentle part, I'm not good at. The second thing is three times, by the way, if you paid attention in this passage, three times he mentions justice. Now, that's an important characteristic in the Old Testament that we often don't pay too much attention to. But the word for justice in the Old Testament is connected with the word sadiq or righteousness in the Old Testament. Because a sadiq, a righteous man, is just toward everyone. Okay? Uh, uh, is, he gives everyone what they are due. At the very beginning of Proverbs, yesterday was the first day of the month, so I got to read Proverbs 1. Uh, he says, I'm going to teach you wisdom, which is treating people with justice and with equity. So we've got a lawyer in the room. Uh, justice is? Following the law, but... And equity is? Fairness. Fairness. In the, in, we, our legal system is collapsed justice and equity, but in England they're still separate. Uh, basically, the law is a dumbass, and so sometimes if you follow the rules, you create injustice. So they created a whole separate legal system about equity, which is when justice would not be done by justice, you get equity, you get fairness, you get right dealing. Okay, So that the Messiah 
is going to give people what they are due and treat them fairly and with justice. And Jesus, when he decides to start his ministry, quotes this very passage uh, as if to alert us uh, that the Messiah is going to be a Messiah of justice. I'm going to stop there because it's on everybody's mind now. Um, in the West, we've kind of come to believe since about 1780 or so that justice is what the people who are in the majority would like to force the rest of the people to do. Justice Holmes, uh, who I used to adore and no, no longer adore quite so much, um, his position was that justice is whatever the people want bad enough to force everyone else to do it. Well, that's a mechanical notion of justice. Now, I want to tell you, the Bible could not disagree more with that. Uh, the Bible could not disagree more with the American idea of justice so common today because justice is its own thing. It's not just what the majority want. The majority can want what is unjust. It is giving each person what they are due and treating them fairly. That's justice. The Messiah is going to be just, not successful. Uh, now, he's not going to cry aloud or cry out in the streets. What's that little characteristic point to? Uh, not so much whiner, but that's part of it. He's not going to bring attention to himself. He's not. Remember, the second temptation of Satan was to throw yourself off the temple and the very angels will lift you up. Now, that would be a sign I'm the Messiah, wouldn't it? If I could climb up on the bell tower here and jump off and angels uh, caught me, do you think everybody in the church would think I was a pretty cool guy? <laughs> uh, uh, so... He's not going to be a person who's necessarily going to be drawing attention to himself. There's no characteristic more despicable in American politicians than the whole business of American politics is drawing attention to yourself. That's the whole business. That's, that's what it's all about. Uh, the Messiah isn't going to be that way. The third one, the fourth one, is even more unusual. This a bruised reed he will not break. What's that? Yeah, he's going he's gonna to be gentle. He's not even going to harm a, a broken reed. By the way, those of you, broken reeds are kind of useless. You can't really do much with them. So the fact is, even the things that have become useless by their brokenness, this Messiah is going to be gentle towards. He's going to be gentle towards everyone. Um, not violent, uh, which I'll just say, that means that Christians have to be opposed to what I might call a politics of violence. We have to be opposed to that uh, because... Uh, the fact that the world works according to violence does not mean that the world works the right way. <laughs> that's, that, that's our point. And he won't be easily discouraged. How many of you, I, I get up every morning and I sort of turn on the news feed. It's a very bad habit on my iPhone. Uh, how many of you experience early morning discouragement these days when you read the, the news? Yeah. yeah, it's easy to get early morning discouragement in our culture. Um, the fact is the Messiah is just going to keep doing what's right until he's victorious. He's not going to get discouraged. Jesus is not discouraged with the situation in our country. Jesus isn't discouraged with our families. He's not discouraged with our church. He's just not discouraged because he's going to be there for all eternity working for love. He's just going to keep right on going uh, as long as it takes to go. Okay, so that's the qualities. Holy Spirit-filled, just, not a narcissist. 
I think Kathy said that. That's, that's a good point. Uh, not violent, but gentle, and not easily discouraged. Now, would we all like to have somebody like that be our leader? Wouldn't you think people would love that? Well, let's read the next passage. Uh, Isaiah 53, 3, and Luke 28 to 29. And I think I, I think I got the site wrong in Isaiah. Let's see if I did. It's more than just verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Isaiah 53, 3. And Luke 4, 28 through 29. And then I, I'm going to turn to Luke very quickly. Luke 17:25. See if I can get it for you. Luke 17:25. Okay. I'm going to pick up with 22. And he said to his disciple, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Now, once again, this is something I would think the Jews would have pondered. How many of us would reject someone who would enter public office and do whatever our personal and private political program says is the best thing? How many of us would like that? How many of us would reject someone who could do that? Nobody. But Jesus, the prophets are saying, despite the fact that this guy's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, despite the fact that he's going to provide justice to the nations, despite the fact that he's not going to be a narcissist and self-serving, but despite the fact he's going to be gentle, despite all that, he's going to be what? Rejected and despised. And of course, as we know, put to death. So the prophets are warning the Jews, and they are warning us that we can actually reject the Messiah that God has sent to us. We can actually do that. Uh, and in fact, we're kind of inclined to do that because we want them, we don't mind him being loving and gentle and spirit-filled so long as he does what we want him to do, right? We're, we're okay with that. But what if he doesn't do what we want him to do? What if the Romans don't get thrown out? What if the Republicans and the Democrats don't get voted out of office? What if we don't win the war? What if? Now are we still happy with this Messiah? Still want to follow him? Still want to give him our lives? Often the answer to that question is, no, no, give us a new Messiah, a better Messiah, one that will do what I want him to do. It's always my favorite Messiah is the one that does what I want him to do. Um, so this is our warning. The Messiah is not going to be what you think. Not going to be what you think. Okay. 
Now, the healing and releasing Messiah. Somebody read Isaiah 61.1. And while they're at it, somebody get Luke 4, 16 through 21. And then Luke 4, 16 through 21. So the Messiah will proclaim good news, that is, will proclaim salvation to the nation. The Messiah will proclaim and work for release of those who are unjustly imprisoned. And the Messiah will be a healer, in this case, the blind. You know, I get to read this passage every so often in my quiet time, and I'm always convicted that I don't really do any of this. that I, I've spent my whole life in the church and I don't do, necessarily do what Jesus asked me to do. Um, it's as if he's t- warning us that it's what we do with what we believe that is the most important, not necessarily how much we know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm a Bible teacher. I spent a lot of my life learning, studying, knowing. But I sometimes think I don't spend enough time doing so those of you who might know less but do more, you're in a better situation than I am. I guarantee you on the judgment day you will be better in a better situation than I will be. Um, so now Daniel 7. We're going to move to Daniel for just a minute. Daniel 7, 13 and 14, and Luke 1, 31 through 35. So somebody get the Daniel 13 and 14, then I may have to sort of... Who's got Daniel 7, 13, and 14? So I've sort of warned you in the past, Daniel's an interesting book. We have it in the prophets. The Jews have it in the writings. For us, it's a prophetic book. For the Jews, it's a wisdom book. Um, and so it's, it's a kind of an interesting book because it combines elements of prophecy and elements of wisdom in one, one book. Um, a very interesting book to, to read. Um, Daniel is a very successful politician. He's been at the right hand of several kings, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, 
Uh, he's been uh, the prime minister of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, by all any political standard of our day or his day, he's a successful person. He's a successful person. Uh, but at the end of his life, he is, of course, considering, he lives long enough, Daniel lives long enough to see the decline of the Babylonian Empire and the reign of the Persians. So he lives long enough to see both of, of those events. And uh, when he is an elderly man, by seven he's elderly, um, he looks, he's given a vision of the future, and he's told something that we often don't want to hear. What is going to happen to the kingdoms of this world that we are invested in and maybe even successful in? They're all going to pass away. All the earthly kingdoms, the United States of America included, are not going to last forever. They're going to pass away. But there is a kingdom that is not going to pass away. There is a kingdom that is not going to pass away. And I didn't have you read all this, but this vision from Daniel is the root of some of the visions that are in Revelation of the Son of Man dressed in white, sitting on a throne, fire flowing from his robes with all power, all glory, all majesty, everything nailed at the bottom of his feet. And... What the assurance that Daniel receives is that the earthly kingdoms will pass away, but there will be a kingdom that will not pass away. And I think because we're running out of time, we're going to jump to the end. At the very end of the book of Daniel, he's given another vision, and Daniel is told, Daniel, just go about your business, because on the last day you'll be raised from the dead, <laughs> and uh, you will see my kingdom. So at the very end of the book, Daniel's given this assurance that he just needs to remain faithful, go about his business, and at the end of time, he will be raised from the dead with everyone else, and he will see the heavenly kingdom. So what does that tell us about the Messianic prophecies, which is that there's a kingdom coming, but it is not an earthly kingdom. Even in the Old Testament, I think they had the notion that it just can't be a better Babylonian empire. It can't be a better Greek empire. It can't be a better David's empire. It's got to be something completely different. It's got to be something completely different uh, because these earthly kingdoms we can see hold in uh, their, their being the roots of their own destruction. Um, poor David, he has to read an incredible number of emails from me every week. Um, including when I decide to talk about Plato, uh, which is, I've been on Plato for about four weeks now. Uh, you know, Plato and, and Aristotle, actually, they had this notion that there were five forms of government, or three, between three and five forms of government, but that there was just a natural tendency for democracy to turn into a kind of oligarchy as people loved money, and for oligarchy to turn into a kind of dictatorship, and for dictatorship to turn into a kind of tyranny. Uh, and so they had this idea that there was a flow to the world of flux. We live in the world of flux. Things are always changing. Things don't stay the same. The government's never stable. My house price goes up and down so fast I don't even know how to keep track of it this month. Uh, but that world of change is undergirded by what they hoped would be a world without change. Well, in sort of a way, that's exactly what 
the vision is of Daniel that despite this world of flux, well, we have, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar was a madman. If you ever invite me back to teach Daniel, he's a crazy man. He had children that were crazy people too. Um, this world in which the political leadership can be as mad as a hatter uh, will be supplanted by a kingdom run by the righteousness of God. That is, there's a hope. So I want to give you a word that I, I'm, I'm trying to write a book, which is poor David, he has to listen to all this. Um, but think of the visions of the heavenly kingdom as a transcendental ideal toward which we are always striving. We never get there. I mean, if, if, does any, we're never going to clean up Washington or Austin or City Hall here. That's, not, that's beyond our power. But we can have that ideal. We can have that ideal so long as, like Jesus, we just love people and we act prudently and we don't bruise a reed on our way toward the heavenly ideal. The problem with the modern world is Lenin's famous quote, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. Well, he was building a perfect world in Russia and he was willing to kill 20 million people to get to do it. And that's where Jesus says we can't do that. That's not, that's part, not part of my program, he says. Uh, no breaking the eggs of, the human, of human beings to make my omelet. Um, so that, but that ideal, that ideal of justice, that ideal of love, that ideal of a truly holy community, that should always be before us and we should always be striving for it. And guess what? On the last day, God will rise you from, raise you from the dead and you will see, finally, that heavenly kingdom. But don't wait for it in the next 20 years. Um, don't expect it to come early. Um, am I supposed to quit now? Does that ding mean I'm supposed to quit? No, not. I'll tell you one more joke. Uh, so I was a, I was a, <laughs> I was a lawyer in the in the savings and loan crisis, and one of my favorite <laughs> friends was a, a, a accountant for one of these savings and loans. It happened to be Hispanic. His name was Lee Trevino. Lee Trevino, um, and he used to say, you know, Chris, people forget that when Jesus comes again, we're going to cash accounting. And the problem with Texas is it came early. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the fact is, at the end of times, things are going to be different than they're always going to be in our world. And we have to be prudent in this world as well as look to the next. Okay. Um, so with that, I'm going to start bringing us to a conclusion. And to do that, I'm going to ask us, let's see, oh, to go to Isaiah 25, oh, pardon me, Daniel 9, 24 to 26, and Galatians 1, 3 through 5. I think we're going to quit with this Galatians one, but it's really important. Daniel 9, 24 through 26. In Galatians 1, 3 through 5. No one understands this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and six sevens. It will be rebuilt the streets and the prince, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
will come like a flood. War will continue until the end of desolation has been decreed. So, go ahead. Go ahead and read that that one. So, um, and by the way, I'm going to give you a few sites because I can't go beyond this, but if you want to look at them up, 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through uh, 56, 1 John 5, 4, and Romans 6, 1 through 4, all these have to do with the supplanting of the present evil age or a present fallen age, an age in which God does not rule, uh, and an age in which God will rule. And Jesus is the inaugurator of that age. When I read the study this week, I said to myself, oh, no, you, you didn't put the 77s in there, did you? Why did you do that? I don't have time to go over it, but for those of you who were curious about it, it, it it's a roughly 490 years, which is roughly the distance between the writing of Daniel and Jesus' crucifixion. Some people will say it's exact. Some people say it's not. But in addition to that, seven is a perfect number to the, to the Jews, so 70 times seven would be perfection times perfection. Uh, so another way of reading it is not as a specific date, but as God's perfect timing. <laughs> as, as a perfection of God's timing, he will bring about his kingdom. Um, and so there's two different ways you might read that. Um, what I get, basically wanted us to get out of this is by the time we get to the end of the prophetic witness, Daniel, by the way, some scholars think the end of Daniel was written pretty late, like 162 or so. Uh, AD. Um, by the time we get to the end of Daniel, they're looking forward to a kingdom that is not entirely earthly. There's plenty of witness in the scripture that this is going to be a heavenly kingdom. It's not going to be a, a kingdom that is earthly in its nature. Uh, and so the, the, the prophets are beginning to see some of the dynamics of world history in a, in a different way. By the time you get to the New Testament... It's clear that the apostles have concluded that the kingdom for which the Jews uh, was, were looking was, not, was a heavenly kingdom, but it's present. Where is it present? Do I know where the kingdom is present? The church. The kingdom, uh, we, we Presbyterians like to say it's provisionally present in the church. The Catholics thought it was present in the church. You know, it was there. It arrived in the church. Uh, we sort of were skeptical, we Presbyterians, so it's only provisional for us. It's, 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 it's here, but we don't look much like God's kingdom most of the time. Um, so that, that that kingdom has now been transferred to a position where it will be inside those of us who believe in Christ. So the kingdom will be a thing inside of us. And because... We're in the world, it will be a thing in the world wherever we are. One of the devotional guides I read this week had a wonderful, wonderful, I think it was uh, uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, had a wonderful thing that when God changes us and we're different, the kingdom isn't just in us, it's in the people we meet, it's in the organizations we serve, it's in the bank we go to work at, it's in the church we belong to, it's in the Rose Society that we are in. The kingdom gets spread beyond us 
into the world because the kingdom in us has changed us. Jesus has changed us. And that's how the kingdom... Did you call me? Oh, amen, okay. (laughs) Sometimes she says shut up, but today it was amen. (laughs) Okay, so I thought I'd close this. I want to thank you all for letting me do this little study. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you didn't do this week, you might want to do it this week because because we don't meet next Sunday, we had to close early. Uh, But this is actually a medit. This week's meditation, of course, is a meditation from the cross to the resurrection. So um, you can get it that way. So at the end of the beginning of Acts, one of my favorite passages, and one that's eternally applicable to us in the church, is this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord. Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he said these things, he was lifted up out of their sight into a cloud. And while they were still gazing into heaven, that's what... That's one of my favorite phrases. While they were just sitting there staring into heaven, doing nothing, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking into heaven? (laughs) This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I just love that little phrase. Why in the world are you guys sitting there staring at the sky? Jesus, we should stare at the sky. We should read our Bibles. We should pray. We should stare at the desire for the heavenly kingdom, but not for too long. We have to go back into Jerusalem, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then go back into the world and proclaim the gospel. And that's how the kingdom of God finally gets into the world. So that's where I think I would like to leave us this week. Um, I'm going to close this by praying the prayer that began the week, if I can find it. Let's pray. Dear rejected God, as the people of Israel often rejected the prophets and the gracious gift of their Messiah, so I sometimes fail to hear your voice calling me to a greater holiness. So often I too reject your mercy and your grace. Forgive me. Lord, as we enter this Easter Holy Week, we do pray that the message that we too have crucified the Messiah every time we've rejected his love every time we've rejected his call on our lives, every time we've been, for me, short-tempered with the children, um, every time we've done that, we've rejected you. And so we need your mercy desperately. Uh, Please be with us and guide us in the week to come and allow our church and our families and our social relationships to be transformed by you, by your spirit, and by its coming into the world through us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Thanks again. Next week, I believe we're on Psalms. Or two weeks. Oh, yes. So, um, a little. I was going to say, so, like in one of my worst and most unchristian moments of behavior as a pastor, I started writing a book, if you'll hold it up. Uh, You can get it on Amazon. It's basically, the beginning is a little talk about the differences between Taoism and Christianity, and then it's a devotional guide 
basically showing how close the Tao, the Chinese Tao, is to Christianity in many respects. And it's also a leadership text because the writer was interested in influencing the, the kings of China. Um, and I, I tell people, when I'm trying to help troubled organizations, there's no book of mine that I read more frequently than that one because it truly does warn you about the dangers of violence, the dangers of aggressiveness, uh, the virtues of peaceableness, and some of those virtues that we Christians hold, hold dear. So uh, I, uh, he bought one, and I'll, I'll give it to you if you want to know more about what I think. Pretty much everything I think is in that book one way or the other.